Hi, and welcome to The Escape Artist, a podcast for the culturally curious traveller. I'm Edwina Hart, I'm a travel journalist and photographer, and each week I'll be interviewing a special guest who has mastered the art of escape. We'll unpack how travel has influenced their lives and creative endeavours. This podcast is pure escapism for those always dreaming of their next destination. Hi, I'm Brooke Sayward, and I'm a traveler who always looks up real estate in cities to imagine what my life would be like if I lived there. And sometimes I end up moving to those cities. The picture-perfect adventures of my guest today are followed by millions of travel-loving fans the world over. Brooke Sayward might hail from the tiny Australian island state of Tasmania, but her global following makes her one of the most influential individuals in travel. Brooke's journey began when she started documenting her holidays on her travel blog, World of Wonderlust, back in 2012. Since then, the successful blogger and entrepreneur has visited over 70 countries and has relocated to Cape Town as a result of a storybook-style romance on an African safari. Brooke's travel tales will take you on a whirlwind journey from the flooded plains of Botswana's Okavango Delta to the bubbling lava lakes and sulfur-spewing landscape of Ethiopia's Danical Depression, which is said to be the hottest place on the planet. Whilst a quick scroll through her Instagram proves she stayed at her fair share of five-star hotels, she certainly doesn't shy away from adventure. Brooke takes us behind the scenes of her most Instagrammable moments, including a close encounter with a hippopotamus and a harrowing journey along the hairpin turns and razor-edge roads of Pakistan in search of the fantastical fairy meadows. Here's Brooke Sayward. Hi, Brooke. How are you? I am great. Thank you, Edwina. How are you today? Oh, well, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. You're a full-time explorer, a successful entrepreneur, and you've built this wonderful community of like-minded globetrotters through your travel blog, World of Wonderlust. So I'm excited to discuss some truly Wonderlust-worthy destinations with you today. But let's begin at the beginning. You were born and raised in Tasmania. Is that right? Sure was. I was born in the northwest of Tasmania and then have lived pretty much my entire life in Launceston, which is the second biggest city in the north. It's such a gorgeous part of Australia. And I'm wondering, do you have any memories from exploring your own backyard as a child? I think, you know what, growing up on an island, the most exciting thing for you when you're young is to get off the island. Mm. So... I think all of my travel memories when I was younger were all like going to the mainland, as we call it, um, or my first international trip overseas. But I think the older I get, the more and more I really feel myself being drawn back to Tasmania and I see how beautiful it is. But I think it takes growing up and growing out of the island to then actually want to be back there. Mm, That really does make sense. Sometimes it can take some time away from where you grew up to really appreciate where you come from. And for the international listeners who might not be familiar with this little island that's a hop, skip and a jump across the Bass Strait from mainland Australia, can you describe Tasmania for us? Oh my gosh, Um, I'm going to do it a disservice no matter what adjectives I use. It is just so lush and it's like very diverse as well. So Um, Where I'm from in the north, you know, we have these beautiful lavender fields that bloom every January and then you go a couple of hours inland and you've got Cradle Mountain, which in the summer it's beautiful to go walking there. One of my favorite treks there is the Overland Track, which is about 
four days in total. Um, and then, you know, you've got these beautiful coastlines with like crystal glassy water and beautiful white sand. It's just, it really is so diverse and it has so much natural beauty. And then you've got really great farm to table produce, a very big wine scene. It's definitely become very trendy for even Australian travelers now. And I think it's it's quite fun to have grown up there and see how popular it's becoming now. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. I was just thinking when you said you've only more recently come to appreciate Tasmania, I think that that uh, on a national level, is the same. It's sort of in the last 10 years has really grown as a destination and, and, and as you said, has become a much trendier place to visit. And I certainly, I love Tasmania. I love the East Coast Drive. And I mean, the Bay of Fires is such a surreal setting with those fiery red boulders that are strewn on this white beach with that crystal clear water. So there are some of the most, I think some of the most beautiful parts of Australia um, are in Tasmania for sure. Yeah. And so let's jump straight into it with a question that I always ask my guests. Is there a book, a film, a song or piece of art that has inspired you to travel somewhere? Um, You know what? I was 13 years old. It's quite a funny story. Um, I grew up on Cirque du Soleil. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever because they had, you know, finding out about a circus that didn't use animals. I just thought they were so cool. And when I was younger, I used to send them audition tapes for (laughs) I don't know what. I know. Like, I have no skills. I have no skills acrobatically or, like, I can't do anything. But um, I used to think it would be such a cool thing to run away with the circus. So... Then I found out there was an advertisement in the local newspaper for a an international children's choir. And I was like, well, maybe I can sing. And my parents were like, no, this is a bad idea. <laughs> but I went to this audition and I don't know how, but I got into this children's choir. I guess it was probably a situation of supply and demand. And there I was. And um On my 13th birthday, I went to Hong Kong and sung at this movie premiere and that was my first time traveling overseas and that is what completely got me hooked on I think what it is with me is like trying – I have this saying where I kind of like try on cities like I try on clothes. I love living different lives. Mm, mm. And what about Hong Kong in particular stood out to you? Like what was it about Hong Kong that spoke to you? Yeah, so where I'm from in Launceston, Tasmania, the tallest building is Meyer and it's four stories high. <laughs> um, we, there's an escalator. It was the most exciting thing when your mom said you were going to Meyer. You were like, yes, I get to go on the stairs that move. So um, for me, it was definitely, <laughs> it was these skyscrapers. It was just everything is so big there. You know, it was the sights. It was the sounds. It was walking along Nathan Road and these like, horrible fish smells and it was just so exciting you know um Mm. so I think it was it was really just that it was so different to my life that I kind of became obsessed with this form of escapism it's like just getting out of your life and stepping into another one for a small amount of time Mm. And I mean, even if you're not from Launceston, you know, Hong Kong is so intoxicating with the glittering skyline or if you take a junk boat along Victoria Harbour, I mean, just the the culture there, it's like how busy it is, how vibrant it is. It's certainly an exciting city, especially to be thrown into when you're a teenager. And I really love this idea that you wanted to sort of run away with the circus. And in some ways, I think being a travel blogger is the modern day equivalent of running away with the circus. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you're actually so right, but you're on your own agenda and you're in charge of your finances and it's like it's actually 
actually quite a lot more work than I think anyone lets on or would like to admit to, but it is such a fun job just flying around and experiencing these cities. And more than that, I just love inspiring other people to escape their nine to five or maybe you're at university and you're looking forward to that one time a year you get to go away. So I think the most exciting thing for me is living that escapism so that it encourages other people to do that too. Absolutely. And I'm sure that the listeners are curious to know, why did you start World of Wanderlust? What what sparked that idea initially for you? Yeah, so what it was, um, so I went on that first trip when I was 13 and then I saved my money. I worked at McDonald's and Woolworths and I saved to go back to Hong Kong because I felt like that was where I really felt my happiest self. So I saved to go back and then eventually decided I needed to venture beyond Hong Kong. So I had this obsession with traveling, but I would only go every two years because it would take me that long to save up for my trips. So by the time I was in university in 2012, when I started the blog, international travel was becoming a lot more popularized and normal. It was becoming more affordable, more accessible. And a lot of people in my in my age bracket and my parents' friends who lived in Tasmania had never gone overseas, but all of a sudden they were. So they were all coming to me like, Brooke is this one person that we can ask, you know, where should we stay when we're in Phuket or where should we eat when we go to Paris? So it was a product of people sending me emails, my parents' friends mostly being like, where should we go? What should we do? And I would write back these really long formatted essays of my recommendations, what to order off the menu, what time is best to go where. And and I was really obsessed with giving these tips. And they would either not write back or just be like, thank you. And then probably wouldn't take all of my advice. So I thought, you know what, let me just put all this information into one place. And when someone asks for my tips, I will just send them a link to this blog, which was really bad when I started out. So it was really a product of just wanting to keep all of my tips in one place. And then it turned into something a lot bigger than I could have ever imagined. Wow, that's such an organic beginning and reason to start the blog. And of course, over the years, you've really built this brand, World of Wanderlust. You have millions of social media followers and readers, and it's the most uh, subscribed travel blog in the world. What do you think, if you could share it with us, is the secret to a successful travel blog? Yeah, I think for me, like you say, it was very organic. And I think that's really important. You have to love what you're doing for people to find your energy contagious. And the blog was always a means to an end for me. I wanted to figure out how to travel and be able to afford to do it. So it really was just that means to an end. And I think what people became hooked on more or less was more my outlook on life than necessarily where I was going. Like I've always had this infectious want to just try anything and everything. And I always say like, I'll try anything once, but twice to be sure. (laughs) I never say no. I just love going to new places, especially going to places that people wouldn't typically think a travel blogger nowadays would go. Like I love just always challenging that status quo and I guess challenging myself more than anything. So I think it's probably more my outlook on life to just 
to just try things than it is the places that I'm going. Mm, Yeah, it's like a real inspiration to those who are following along on your amazing adventures. And so in the early days, where where did you buy that one-way ticket to? Like where did you first set off and, and really begin to explore? Yeah, so I started the blog in 2012. I was still at university. I decided to drop my law degree and finish in political science so I could finish quicker. Uh, And then I booked a one-way ticket to London on the day that I graduated university. I stepped out in my robe and my tasseled hat and said, mom and dad, I'm flying to London and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, And I always say a gap year is kind of this word that I feel like parents have probably made up to to have a reason to tell their friends why their offspring is being so um, responsible and like you finish <laughs> university and you just fly off and kind of do nothing for a year but I always had in my mind that when I went I would try and push my blog and and make it my career but I never thought that it would really become what it is and it really again was a product of necessity when I got to London I had saved 14,000 Australian dollars which you think is so much money when you're in your early 20s but um It was probably three to four months and I had blew through all of that because I'm the person that gets to a country like Switzerland and they're saying, does anyone want to go skydiving? And I'm like, well, I'm never going to be here again, so I might (laughs) as well. So I was burning through cash so quickly and then that's when I kind of, I was getting approached by brands like, do you want to do a collaboration? And I was like, okay, what is this? What do I do? So your hugely successful travel blog has been going strong for years and you've constantly been on the go. You've self-described as living out of a suitcase. And last year you made the big move to base yourself in Cape Town, South Africa. Is is that where you are right now? Yes, I am here right now in Cape Town. Okay, so let's hear about this most recent chapter of your adventures. What do you love about living over there? Yeah, I think it's such a great city for people who love being in a city but also love being out in nature. Like we can literally go for like anywhere from like a 20-minute to a two-hour hike and have these epic views over the city, over Lion's Head, over Table Mountain. There's just, yeah, there's really such a good blend of the city meets the sea here. So that's what I really love most. Also, like everything is so close by for something completely different. So the Cape Winelands is only an hour away. And I just love going out there on road trips and exploring and being out on the farms. And yeah, it's just got a really good bit of everything, I think. So the Cape Winelands, we're talking Franschhoek and Stellenbosch, and a lot of people, they don't think of the Cape Winelands when they think of South Africa. They're picturing Cape Town um, and perhaps going on safari, Kruger National Park. Um, But the Winelands are exceptionally picturesque. You've got those charming uh, towns and villages that have the Cape Dutch-style architecture, as well as oak-lined streets and the best gastronomy, the best wine. Um, and Franschhoek even has that French influence from the settlers that immigrated um, a couple of hundred years ago. So that's got a provincial European feel to it as well. So what do you think is the perfect way to spend a day in the Winelands? Yeah, I think you definitely mentioned some of my favorite places. Franschhoek is, I would say, my favorite town in the Winelands, which, as you said, is where the French Huguenots settled. So there's a really good blend of culture and architecture. You've got the Cape Dutch 
architecture there, especially in the wine farms. And then you've got so many great restaurants because there is that French influence as well. Mm. So yeah, Franchuk is my perfect, I would say, day trip. You've got the wine tram as well, which I'm not sure if you've taken, but basically, yeah, it's like a hop on, hop off tram that goes from... Um, vineyard to vineyard so that's a really cool fun day and then you obviously you don't have to drive so <laughs> you can enjoy yourself <laughs> shall we say good tip um and then I feel like I'm now at the point where I'm experiencing more beyond the typical tourist route that most people take when they when they come to Cape Town yeah you're definitely having a much more local experience so it's actually great to get some um, insider tips from you but Cape Town itself is such a vibrant creative colorful city it's a melting pot of different cultures and of course the natural beauty is what's so breathtaking because you've got that stunning flat topped table mountain that seems to loom over the city it's simply breathtaking and I love it when the the clouds shroud the top of the the mountain creating the appearance of a tablecloth it's quite a sight to see and then of course you have these beaches that are phenomenal do you have a a favorite beach in Cape Town? I do. I'm so glad that you asked this question because I did not find out about this beach until I lived here. Um, It's a place called Landudno and it's very residential. There's no shops there whatsoever, but that is the beach where all the locals will go to get away, especially in summer when we're completely inundated with tourists but I think when you live here as a local too you kind of want to get away from that. I've been there and it is such a beautiful beach. It's secreted away making it feel even more special and it's along that incredible drive Mm -hmm. heading towards Chapman's Peak which is one of my all-time favorite views in the world and I love driving the Big Sur um, for example in California but I think that the coastal road from Cape Town heading towards the wild windy Cape of Good Hope where you can see all those um, baboons along the way is one of the most magnificent and also underrated road trips on the planet. Uh, Have you hit the road and, and done that drive? Yeah I have it's so beautiful I've done it quite a few times and I would say that's a really good comparison actually it's very similar to the pacific coast highway one um driving through big sur and yeah we go down we've been down to actually probably a few too many times to count i've been down to see the penguins at simon's town oh at boulders beach yeah yeah so boulders beach just past simon's town and i don't know why but i'm still not over it oh i want to move to cape town just so i can (laughs) just go to see those penguins all the time i saw the penguins at um boulders beach and swam with them um many years ago they're just so adorable so you on that drive is there anything else that you'd recommend doing or seeing Yeah, I would definitely, the first stop I would make would be Hout Bay. Um, There's a really beautiful market there that has really great local produce and um, different designers, like there's different jewelry designers. I'm not sure if you've been, but it's just beautiful and a great first stop leaving Cape Town. It's got that uh, fisherman's feel to it. Yes. Yeah. So I remember going to a seafood shack and trying this really delicious fish, which is uh, from South Africa called snook. But yeah, it's incredibly quaint. Yeah, Hout Bay beautiful and then I would also recommend carrying on to Musenberg that's where a lot of locals will go there's like very low um there's a nice beach there and you can rent out surfboards and they're just kind of like small getting to 
learn, I guess, surfing waves. Um, and then carry on just a little bit further down the coast, you'll find Simonstown and Boulders Beach. Mm. And Musenberg's um, known for those adorable, brightly painted beach huts. And yeah, Cape Town's beaches, they rival anywhere in the world. And what I think is so great is you can go on a safari, see all the animals, have that experience, but then you can also squeeze in a beach holiday too if you visit Cape Town as well. And I'm impressed you've certainly discovered some of the best spots in your new hometown. Now, I know that your partner is South African. What's the story behind you moving there? It's a good one. I'll try and condense it as much as I can. But basically, about two years ago, I was in Botswana for the first time. And I was staying at this beautiful lodge in the Okavango Delta. It's very special. And when I'm retelling this to my friends, I say quite literally sparks flew. Um, in the form of fireflies flying around us. Um, so my boyfriend and I now, uh, we sat down for dinner on my third night at the lodge. and So he was staying at the same lodge that you were? No, it's better than that. Okay. He was managing the lodge that I was staying at. Okay, this is straight out of the storyline from out of Africa, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's literally a storybook romance. So we met then and um, a year later, I was back in Botswana. So you can ma- imagine my surprise when I was staying at a different lodge um, and he had moved lodges and he was now working at this new lodge that I was staying You're at. You're joking. No, nope, no, nope, okay. no. Nope. Yeah. So um, I knew before getting there because I had, he had actually said to me, you're on the incoming guest list. What's going on? And I was like, oh, hey, haven't heard from you for a while. Yeah, I'm coming to Botswana, but I'm staying at this lodge. And he was now managing this lodge. So uh, long story short, uh, we did get together eventually. We kind of felt like it was probably something like fate. Um, Yeah. Mm, And that's a a deeply swoon-worthy setting to have those sparks fly. Um, And so there's the love story behind your time in Botswana, but you also seem to have a love affair with Botswana itself as you've Mm -hmm. been to the country many times. What is it about Botswana that you've fallen for? Oh my gosh, if I could say anywhere in Africa has captured my heart, I think it would be Botswana for me. It's just I've been on I've been very fortunate to go on a lot of safaris now and I still pinch myself that this is my job, but for me Botswana is the most magical place to go on safari, especially the Okavango Delta and when you start to get the floods as well and you can get a Makoro out onto the water and you know, it's just it feels like you're very connected to the earth there. And there is a really um, high level of respect from the locals for the animals as well. Um, you know, poaching is very low there as well because they the government does spend so much protecting the animals there. Um, it just it is one of the more expensive places to go on safari, I will say. But also you will find because of that, there are much – it doesn't feel as much like in um, in Kenya, in the Masai Mara. You can see 20 vehicles at the same animal siding, which then feels a little bit like you're at a zoo. So for me, I think it just feels so real, so raw. You get the entire landscape to yourself. You very rarely will see another car. So it feels more – real, I guess. Mm, I've heard it described as the the last authentic safari on mm. earth. I haven't been to Botswana, but your descriptions have certainly reinforced that notion. So if one is to visit the Okavango Delta, I'm visualizing uh, 
lush green colours, glistening floodplains, um, an abundance of wildlife, especially during the wet season. And one of the most quintessential images that I have of that part of Botswana is a journey on one of those um, those canoes, the Mokoro, is, yeah. that, is that what you call it? Yeah. Yeah, so can you describe that experience for us? Okay, so I think it was maybe the third time that I was in Botswana that I got to do it because notoriously over the last few years, it has been getting a lot drier and a really great documentary to watch if anyone is interested. And even if you're not, I I got so interested in this and I've, I've just become obsessed with watching African documentaries now because I'm living here. I want to learn more about what's going on. But um into the Okavango, which is um, a documentary film by National Geographic. And they actually go up into Angola to discover why the water supply into the Okavango Delta in Botswana, why it isn't flowing as freely and coming down as much. I won't give too much away because it's a really great documentary, but to be able to go there and finally get water was one of the most exciting things I think I've had on the continent. And we went out in the morning um, so you jump in the Land Rover and go to one of the locations. We get out onto this Makoro and, you know, you're so excited. It's early in the morning too and it's something different. And the guide at the front who almost is a, appearing kind of like a, a gondolier like you see in Venice, like they're going along with this um, big stick that's going into the water and we're cruising along and he's singing Hakuna Matata. <laughs> we're all singing along. Like it's so much fun, very quintessential. And then he just stops. He puts up his hand. Everything goes silent. We're like, oh, what's happening? This must, must be exciting. And you never think that anything really bad will happen to you on safari because you just, I mean, you always think it won't happen to me. And we stop and there's this massive hippopotamus. Oh, no. Yeah, like I think maybe 20 meters away. Africa's most dangerous creature as well. Yes, and you don't think that. Like you think lion or cheetah or leopard, but you see this hippopotamus very close and he's coming into the water. <gasps> and when they're on a mission, they're on a mission, you know? Oh, my gosh, Brooke. Yeah, they're quite quick too. So we immediately turn around. I'm trying to get photos because I think it's the most <laughs> exciting thing. And um, yeah, we quickly made a beeline out of there, but he did say, we kind of thought, oh, well, like that must happen all the time though. You know, you kind of think people fluff it up a little bit. He's like, no, 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 no. Like we, d we don't go in the water when there's a hippopotamus. Wow. That is, yeah, that's serious business. I know um, in the KwaZulu-Natal, I've been canoeing along waters where there's supposedly hippos. And mm -hmm. even the idea of it scared me. So <laughs> the fact that you actually saw one and got that close and when the guide themselves say, say you know that was a really dangerous situation <laughs> you know that you had a real real safari experience when you've had something like that happen for sure yeah then you oh know God, it must have really got the um, heart racing yeah especially for my friend who's afraid of flies I mean she was running about a kilometer in any direction whenever she would see a small fly mm -hmm. so it was very entertaining to see her reaction <laughs> So say you want to experience something a little less adrenaline fueled in Botswana. What's another highlight? This is terrible, but I think I've been fortunate enough to go to Botswana three or four times now. Um, wow, amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. And then the last time that I went, I actually went to the Kalahari Desert, which is not too far from the Okavango Delta, but completely different landscape. It's dry, it's salt pans. That is where you go if you want to see the meerkats in oh, real life up gosh. close. I love meerkats. Yeah. They're so entertaining. So did you did you manage to see them? 
I'm going to make a bold statement here and say that meerkats for me are better than penguins. Like they're so cute to watch Mm -hmm. in the wild. Um, Yeah, we did. We did an afternoon walk. So you basically do a walk with the meerkats and there's a trained specialist there that walks with the meerkats every day just to, I guess, have them more... You don't touch them. You don't go too close to them. Sometimes they actually run up on your head. So you can sit down. It's so cute. You can sit down and they think you're a termite mound. So they'll literally climb up you. I'm so sad to say this, but they didn't climb up on my head. I tried. I just, I guess it's something about my fiery red hair. You tried to bring out your inner inner termite. It didn't happen. But you know what? It happened for my friend and I think it's one of her claim to fame. <laughs> I don't blame her. And and where yeah. would you recommend staying for those who have been inspired to go to Botswana? Um, yeah, so probably my most memorable camps that I've stayed at. Obviously, I have to say Sandibe because that's where I met my partner. Um, but it is really beautiful. It's a very... Um, natural structure it was designed by architects to um, replicate the body of a pangolin so it's really beautiful and then also the sky beds Botswana where you stay out under the stars in these three-story kind of like treehouse huts almost yeah that was absolutely beautiful and and what part of Botswana is that in the Okavango Delta as well yeah yeah so those were both in the Okavango Delta and then sand camp which is in the Kalahari was just it just felt like going back into a 1920s safari like it was canvas tents these like beautifully decorated old rooms with all of the like everything that you would see in out of Africa um it was just gorgeous. So it had that vintage aesthetic. Yeah, it did. And um, even it went so far as to have um, photographs from the owner of the camp. Like he was one of the original guys who got safaris going. So there's all these old photographs and you kind of go through the family history and really feel like you've stepped back in time. So those are probably my favorites. And then I really love the mobile safari camps because you do feel like anything can happen when you're <laughs> – just on the side of this kind of body of water and you don't really know what's going on. And by mobile, you mean they're sort of tented camps that move around depending on the wildlife Mm -hmm. and where they set up. That's like really, that's really going back to what it would have been like to do a safari back in the olden days for sure. Yeah, exactly. Staying on the topic of safari, where else in Africa have you really enjoyed getting out into the wild? I think everywhere to me has its own place in my heart, but I think East Africa is where it's at if you're going for a safari for the first time and you want those like big open plains and tall grasses and just views for days. Mm. And safari is not the only thing that you can get up to in East Africa. I know that one can get off the beaten path and try something completely different. And what comes to mind is the Spice Island of Zanzibar off the coast of Tanzania. The name itself is so evocative and I know that you've been. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really intrigued to hear what's it like. So I was in, this is the first time I went to Botswana. I just really had this calling and this connection. Like I need to be in Africa right now. I need to see more and do more and have these experiences. Like it was just really calling my name. So I ended up extending my trip and last minute booking a flight to Zanzibar. So I thought, you know what, let me just go to Zanzibar and see what it's about. Um, So I get over there and... I just had no idea what to expect. I really hadn't 
understood the, you know, the slave trade there, the history. It, it really is fascinating. I spent a couple of days there in Stonetown having those experiences. Before you and- move on, what is Stonetown? Like, can you describe that for us? Yeah, it's very... I would say very authentic, uh, really feels like a step back in time. But it's just, it's like, it honestly feels like a movie set. It's kind of like when you're in Morocco walking through these tiny little alleyways and you see all these um, Moorish like door details and architecture and those elaborate wooden doors that it's known for. Yeah, exactly. And it's so funny to think back, actually. The first time I was in Morocco, I took so many photos of doors. I probably did the same thing in Stonetown. (laughs) And then you see someone go into one, like you see them slip inside these doors and you just get this glimpse of what life is like inside there. Mm, So That hidden world inside. Yeah, exactly. It was just beautiful and it it felt very – like there's just so much history there. Because it's got that mixture of like the Swahili, the Moorish, Arab, Persian, Indian – European, so it's kind of a, a, a all the influences on the architecture make it this really historic place. But then the reason that you went there is more to seek out that tropical paradise. Am I right? Yeah. So I so after Stone Town, I went off onto actually an island off the coast of Zanzibar. It's only about a twenty or thirty minute boat ride, but it's basically where everyone goes to go snorkeling in Zanzibar, which is off Nemba Island. So I check into this lodge and I get there and I'm like, wow, like this is so surreal. They call it barefoot luxury, which is basically, I think, where they charge astronomical prices for these very simple and basic um, experiences, but they make them so elaborate and so like just incredible. So it's it's this bungalow that has no windows, no doors. There's 12 on the island. So you really feel like you walk outside of your bungalow and you just have this private beach all to yourself, which is what it really felt like. And, and you have, you know, you have three meals a day. So you have this like very gastronomic experience as you're going along, but really just on this private island in the middle of nowhere. It's just funny, like the experiences that you have in this industry, you would never, I would never be able to afford these things if I was paying for it myself. So it's really, it's been a great experience in that sense to have these just insane to be thrown into that world oh totally I always say like I'm this ordinary girl in this extraordinary life like to be able to have these experiences and then share them let alone with like you know hundreds of thousands of people on the internet but even just like my parents and my friends are like whoa what was that like (laughs) you know it's such a fun fun thing to be able to do Mm, you've certainly checked into more hotels than most people would dream of in a lifetime but can you think of the most unusual place that you've spent the night that's a funny question because actually just last year I had this idea that I wanted to travel to Ethiopia and I had absolutely no idea what I was getting myself in for. And um, so we get to Ethiopia, I'm with my partner and he's also, I mean, he's South African, but for him, Ethiopia is like another world as well. And so we get there with no idea really what we're doing. We had the first two nights booked and nothing beyond that. We get to Ethiopia and we really wanted to go to the Danical Depression, which is way up in the north on the border to Eritrea. And we really wanted to go there because it's the hottest place on earth. It looks incredible. You see photos and you just think like it looks like Mars. I mean, a lot of it as well is volcanic. Um, 
we did go and climb a volcano on one of the nights. Unfortunately, it didn't have as much lava as I was expecting, which I've come to learn is a good thing because it had erupted uh, before we had, not soon before we had got there, but if you see a lot of lava, there's the chance that it, it can erupt. So I was quite happy, happy with that um, further development of information. Mm-hmm. But after that, we went to the Danical Depression and the whole adventure was, I think, three nights and we didn't have a toilet for those four days, three nights. We um, we were eating a lot of local food as well and for anyone who knows Ethiopian food, it can be quite spicy. So you kind of do want a toilet in, in those situations but um, we, were, we, we were just roughing it and we had these three nights. One night we slept on the floor by this volcano, so literally on a piece of tarp. Um, it was quite hard, but also very comical because we didn't know when we signed up for this tour that that's what we were getting ourselves into. I think we naively thought there might be a sleeping bag um, involved. <laughs> so it's really, really extreme. I mean, you're you're sleeping on a on a tarpaulin, and can you describe the like? Is it does it feel hot? Is it is it does it smell like sulfur? I mean, yeah. what does the landscape look like? What does it feel like to be there? You're there at like five o'clock in the morning, so that you can get that light before it gets too hot it is the hottest place on earth and you don't think I mean you don't think it can be much hotter than anywhere else you've been until you get there and so we get there and it just so it just feels like a furnace yeah pretty much and it just reeks of you say sulfur I say egg like it just smells like egg and so we're like walking through this very mars-like landscape and you come up over this ledge and then you see all this sulfur bubbling away and you're told before you get there no matter what do not touch the sulfur do not let your um, foot go it like your shoe go anywhere near it like it just burns and you're walking around and you can walk on the brown parts but you can't go anywhere near the yellow like there's all these kind of very basic rules and you kind of feel like a little bit like a school child like going around like oh don't touch the yellow part and it's just bubbling up and it, it essentially is the D- Danico Depression is a an underground volcano that hasn't erupted yet. And you're walking around just thinking, this is so bizarre and also so unsafe. Mm. What led me to be here? Why am I doing this? I mean, even on the edge of a volcano too, you're like, why am I doing this? But it's so fun. And your mother back home is probably thinking the same thing. But like are the colours, are they? have we got reds and yellows and oranges? I mean, is it, is yeah. it really surreal? It's so surreal, I think, that it's difficult to describe. But you do, you have these browns, these reddish browns. Um, you have yellow, you have green, you have blue. It literally looks like a painting where someone's thrown all this paint onto a canvas and then just got their fingers and like smudged it all around and made it this like catastrophic. It's it's just incredible and so unlike anywhere that I have ever been or will ever be. Just an incredible experience and one of those places that really sticks with you for life. Mm, it sounds so extreme. And in your time in Ethiopia, did you experience anything beyond that region? Yeah, we also went to Gondar, which is the ancient capital of, it probably sounds, sorry, that's my Australian accent, probably sounds more like Gondar, but um, <laughs> Gondar. Um, we went there first and we actually went hiking in the Simeon Mountains. 
I had seen these photographs of these beautiful mountain um, bleeding heart monkeys. So they're these monkeys with really long hair. Kind of think like this is an awful um, comparison, but if you think of those Pomeranian dogs when they have long hair, <laughs> it's like that kind of hair. Like a sort of mane? Yeah, it's sort of like a mane and it's um, – I don't know. It's like it's glossy but also coarse. I don't know. It's just like this very furry coming out hair and then they have these bleeding hearts on their chest. So there's like a red marking on their chest. It is, yeah, Mm -hmm. in the shape of a heart. And we saw them on the first day. So I feel like I peaked too soon because I just (laughs) from that moment on all I wanted to do was see these monkeys again. But, um, yeah, it was an incredible experience. And then hiking through the Simeon Mountains at elevation, we were up to I think 4,700 metres above sea level. Wow. Um, which is quite difficult just to actually breathe and walk, let alone hiking upwards. But yeah, that was a really great experience. Mm, Yeah. And the Simeon Mountains, I'm picturing sort of rugged valleys and high peaks. Uh, What's it like? Can you paint a picture for us? It's just one of those places where you feel so small. And I love a place that you can go and really feel your sense of self for how small humans are and how how we really take over this world and run it as our own. But really, like, we're just visitors here. So I think it felt a bit like that. And, um, and you just... You can just see for days, you know, and there's no one around hardly. Um, it's I think that's what's the biggest appeal for me in Ethiopia is it's very uh, pre kind of tourism right now. So it's a great place to go now. It's kind of like Cuba was four years ago. It's a great place to go right now, but it's definitely the next like hottest destination, I think, in Africa and just – culturally like all the churches that are built into the ground and built into the caves and there's just some really incredible sites to see there that you won't get anywhere else. Mm. Well you heard it here first ladies and gentlemen Brooke has called Ethiopia the next hot destination in Africa and uh, yeah that's certainly a sentiment that I've been hearing a lot within the travel industry and you mentioned those rock hewn churches um, and that's a topic that I can promise that we'll be delving into in a future episode of the escape artist this season so that's something to look forward to but this leads me on really nicely to my next question as you're clearly drawn to some of the less obvious destinations, ones that are off the tourist trail, so to speak. So I know that last year that you went on a 10-day journey around Pakistan, and I'm keen to hear about your impressions and your observations from your experiences there. Yeah, so we ended up um, doing a Hunza, the Hunza Valley, which is just gorgeous. And you just feel like you're stepping back in time. These beautiful old castles that you're experiencing. And um, the pla- one of the places that has really stuck in my mind is it's, it's a place called Adabad Lake. And we actually only stopped there when we were driving from Hunza over to um, this Indiana Jones bridge that was like far off in the... I don't know why we even went there. It literally was just a bridge, but it was really cool and like quite Um, adventurous but on the way we stopped at Adabad Lake and it's this like turquoise blue water like you've never seen before in your life with these dramatic brown kind of just massive like sharp rocked edge um, mountains that are kind of surrounding it and there's weed growing everywhere like all over the sides of the road Um, 
so there's like there's this kind of like culture around hash as well which I hadn't experienced I'm like a very (laughs) young naive girl that grew up on an island so it was all very um entertaining to experience all of this but we were we're in the Hunza Valley one of the best days was when we climbed um, to the base of Nanga Parbat. It's called Fairy Meadows and you basically climb. It's just a day hike, but you're kind of climbing up and up and up and all you can see is rubble, like just rubble for days. And then it starts to open up as you're getting to the top. You literally, I remember just almost climbing like hands and feet to get to the top of this kind of big open um open kind of plain of like beautiful green grass and you you get to the top and you see these Swiss cabins on the right hand side log cabins and I remember getting there being offered chai tea and then he was trying to tell me to turn around and look because the clouds were coming in you turn around and on the left hand side just this absolutely stunning vision I remember seeing Nanga Parbat in all its glory just popping out over with this blue sky and the clouds just rolling in like it's it's just beyond anything you could it literally looks like a postcard it doesn't look real it sounds magical (laughs) I know it sounds like it's out of a picture book so it's sort of a is it a snow-topped peak yeah it's this this beautiful like peak of a mountain and it's these really dramatic landscapes off in the distance and then this beautiful like lush greenery and men riding around on horseback it just it just had this very earthy kind of feeling and um we met so many locals as well like we really didn't run into many other tourists which I guess I was expecting too not being a very touristic destination but we met so many locals from all over Pakistan they they a lot of them do travel throughout their country too so we met lots of people while we were there and I just remember being sat in front of the fire in the main kind of log cabin because the rooms aren't heated um and we were just there with like I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 people all sat around, just like a big group of people that you've just met, but everyone becomes very friendly, very quick. And a lot of young people as well are very educated in Pakistan. So you meet a lot of people who are, you know, tertiary educated and speak perfect English. So it's it's really interesting to have those experiences because they find you so interesting, but in reverse, you find them so interesting. They just so badly want to change the narrative, I suppose. Mm, and that kind of cultural exchange is... I guess one of the reasons why we love to travel so much, that human connection that we find with people from places that are so far from our own, our own homes, but they end up being so similar to us in so many ways. And also your descriptions of fairy meadows, I mean, that that's meant to be one of the most stunning places in Pakistan. The name itself conjures up this image of this fantastical fairyland. Uh, but I have heard that um, to get there, you have to venture along quite a treacherous path. You have to drive along uh, one of the most dangerous roads in the world. Can you share that experience with us? It is so narrow on the edge of the biggest cliff face. We're driving through like incredible terrain where you would think a car can't even go there, let alone this little minibus um, that was just loaded up with people. And I think the dramatic scenery, like driving around in this rubble almost and these massive cliffs that your your, your car is almost hanging off of, it kind of reminded me of, I don't know if you've ever been to La Paz, but the death road in Bolivia. Bolivia. Yeah. yeah, it was like that, but 
way worse like so much more rock and rubble and just looked like it was going to collapse at any moment it's bumpy as all hell you're going all over these rocks thinking this is it this is the end of my life and also all the while I'm sat next to Z who was the guy that arranged this trip who's just such a charismatic character and he's singing Pakistani so like we're going up the mountain they're like you know he's he thinks it's hilarious and I'm just there (laughs) just like oh I should have stayed on my island. Oh, I don't blame you. And it doesn't sound like the ideal time to be joining in on car trip sing-alongs either. But these are the things that we sometimes do to see some really beautiful parts of the world. Um, So you spent quite a decent amount of time in Pakistan to get a feel for it. What was the biggest takeaway for you? I think I said this earlier, I love challenging the status quo. And I'm in this position where I can encourage, you know, many, many people across the world to think outside the box. And I just really felt like I had this kind of sense of um, purpose to go there and really just show what it was like. And this was the thing. There was no agreement in place that I had to show it in a particular way. Just you go, you experience it, and you share what it's really like because it is so different to how it is portrayed in the Western media. And I think as well it's a very sensitive topic because – There are a lot of instances where there have been, um, you know, events and situations that are negative and you kind of, you can't disagree with that. So I understand where the Western perception comes from, but I also think it is quite outdated. So I just wanted to get there and really experience. And also we tend to, in the Western world, stereotype and put people as a whole into a box, but a lot of like Pakistani people are so hospitable, so welcoming. They want to welcome you into their home and bring you chai, bring you like they'll cook you dinner that you've never met them before, but they just want to give you this experience so that you can see what their country is like. And I just really felt like I had this kind of sense of, um, purpose to go there and really just show what it was really like. Mm, And that's why it's sometimes so important to travel to places that have been put on the so-called bad list, Mm -hmm. uh, to see it for yourself and to break down those preconceived notions. And it sounds like you really got a lot out of that trip personally, which is great to hear. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. But before we go, I would love to hear where you're dreaming of escaping to next. Ooh, um, I'm going to say... And this is one of my favorite places on earth. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but Nihi, which used to be called Nihiwatu on Sumba Island in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. The most recent time I stayed in this huge treehouse villa, it literally looks like it's out of Tarzan and Jane. Like it's incredible. <laughs> um, again, it's that barefoot luxury where it's like this over the top experience, but in this very beautiful, natural, you know, um, kind of habitat. Oh, I think I could do with a bit of that barefoot luxury too. And it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast and hearing the behind the scenes stories of your life in South Africa and your wonderful adventures on the road. So yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show, Brooke. Oh, thank you so much. It was really fun and just nice to sit down and um, I don't know, it's almost like a walk in the park, really going back on your old travel memories and reliving them again. Well, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks so much, Brooke. That was the Australian travel blogger, Brooke Saywood. She certainly lives a life less ordinary, and I hope you found her travel tales inspiring. You can follow along on Brooke's exciting escapades at worldofwanderlust.com. And thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review so that others can discover this podcast as well. 
Of course, I'd love to hear from you. And if you're looking for some more travel inspiration, you can find me on Instagram at Escape Artist Podcast. See you next week for another episode of The Escape Artist.